Jesus, we want to thank you, God, and, and we want to just glorify you for the work you're doing in our lives, in our church, God, and, and how, Lord, I believe with all my heart that you have a plan uh, for us, for every single person in here and the leadership that's represented and also the people that are new to us that are represented. Lord God, you, you have a very specific reason for each person to be here, and I pray that that's not lost, and Lord, nothing you do here tonight is forgotten. Lord, we pray for the word of God to be powerful for us tonight. Lord, and um, God, that you would, you would be the one that's giving us peace and comfort. You are the one that's changing us. And God, you are the one that is here teaching us. We ask these things in the name of Jesus, uh, Lord God, because we, we want to have your heart about what we read and what we think about. Lord, and what's going on in our lives. So, Lord, we rejoice. We give you honor and glory. God, you, you deserve every part of our lives. So, Lord, help us to surrender more to you. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, tonight's study is called Horses and Horns. And it's subtitled, Jesus the Warrior. Horses and Horns, Jesus the Warrior. You know, it'll make sense by the end. So... As you're looking for the book of Zechariah, it's toward the end of the Old Testament, right after Haggai. And we, we, we introed the book last week by talking about um, Zechariah's message of restoration. And that's the, actually the title of the whole series is a restoration project, how God is going about a, a, a project of restoring his people. And how applicable that is into our lives, because many times our lives are left in ruins and are, are hurting. And yet God will bless us. And we looked at the names. You guys remember the names of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo? We looked at these names and we looked at the meanings, how Zechariah means God remembers. Berechiah means God will bless. And Edo means at the appointed time, which is basically a very good summary of this book and how God works his restoration project in our lives. He remembers us, not that he forgot us, but we're always on his mind. He's always thinking about how he can work in your life, how he can adjust your life and how he can change your life. He remembers and then he will bless. That's his goal. That's his plan is to bless you and it will be at the appointed time. So there may be patience involved. There may be learning to wait upon the Lord involved, but it will be at the point in time. So we get to verse 7. And it says, On the 24th day of the 11th month, in the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo, the prophet. So there's those names. There's that plan, that plan of God to restore, that plan of God to heal and fix what was wrong in this nation at the time. And he says, I saw by night and behold, a man riding a red horse and it stood among the myrtle trees in the hollow and behind him. There were horses, red, sorrel and white. And I said, my Lord, what are these? So the angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. So God He's reminding these people of his long plan to restore them. Even in the names, you get that that he's been working. And, you know, here in back in those names, you got 
three generations that God had been working just in the naming of the kids so that when they read this letter and when when uh, when they heard Zechariah, who Zechariah was, that the message to them would be, OK, God remembers, God restores, God, God is going to bless us and it's going to be at the po- appointed time. So all that time, God's been preparing a work for these people. And so we see this crazy vision. Like of these horses and these colors and a guy standing in some myrtle trees. And I don't know what any of it meant when I first read it. And when you first read it, you probably were like, okay, God, I really don't know what you're talking about here. Because in 2014, where we're in right now, that doesn't really translate. It doesn't really make sense. But. This is the word of the Lord. And so we have to understand, we have to start digging and start trying to find out what this means for us. And so the first thing we're going to talk about is just visions in general. Visions. The Lord speaks through visions in the Old Testament. This is a very common thing where someone would see into the supernatural world. God would open up their eyes to see what what was the reality of the world around them or something to come in the future. Back in Genesis chapter 15, 1, um, it says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield and your exceedingly great reward. It says the very first time that God appeared to Abraham, or Abram at the time, he said, Don't be afraid. I am your shield and your exceedingly great reward. See, God speaks very specific things to us. He, he, he is engaging with us in these visions. So God has definitely spoken through these visions. There are hundreds of visions in the Bible, and each and every one of them that's from the Lord is going to be true, every single one of them. And there's this supernatural event that shows us a glimpse into the spiritual world that we cannot see with our human eyes. So why would God do that? Because he wants us to understand that the spiritual world is real and it's just as true as the world that we see around us. We look in and we look with our eyes and it looks like we're in an upside down boat right now. You know, it looks like Noah's Ark got turned upside down and they made a church out of it. And that's where we're, we're sitting right now. That's what we see. But if God were to open our eyes, what would we see? Would we see angels just guarding us, guarding over us? Would we see a battle, spiritual battle happening inside your hearts and and, you know, all this craziness. What would we see? Would we see some guys riding horses? I don't know. I don't know. Because not all visions are true. Not every version is if so, Every time someone says, I've had a vision, we cannot run to go hear what those visions are just automatically and believe them. And why? Well, Jeremiah 14, 14, that's what was happening. And, and the Lord said to me, the prophets prophesied lies in my name. They have, I have not sent them, commanded them, nor spoken to them. They prophesy for you a false vision, divination, a worthless thing, and the deceit of the heart. See, vision, when the Lord brings vision, it, he's not bringing guesses. He's bringing something that's sure. He's, it's, a, it's really looking into the spiritual world where people can make that up. And say, I've seen a vision. And it says here, it's a false vision, divination, a worthless thing, and deceit of the heart. In Ezekiel chapter 13, verse 7, it says, Have you not seen a futile vision? 
And you have not have you not spoken false divination? You say, the Lord says, but I have not spoken. See, the issue isn't that God doesn't want to speak. God is perfectly able to let people know what he wants them to know. He's perfectly able to speak to us. And he's perfectly able to use visions. In fact, we have a whole book of them right in front of us. The whole Bible is full of them. So we can believe all of those. But if someone comes to you today and says they've had a vision or a dream and it's for you, we have all this context to judge that by. Okay, you've had a vision for me that I need to go buy a lollipop stand. Well, does that line up with what I see in the Bible? And we have all this context to, to lead us and to guide us. Um, so God may have a word for you in a vision, but we get a huge benefit in 2014 of having the whole word of God to compare that vision and see if it follows God's heart. To see if it follows God's heart. To see if it glorifies Jesus. And that's where we go with it. So, we saw that there's this vision and there's, it's at nighttime, and there's a man riding a red horse and stood among the myrtle trees in the hollow. And behind him, there were horses, red, sorrel, and white. And I said, my Lord, who are these? So the angel who talked to me said to me, I will show you what they are. <clears throat> so who is, well, let's, let's read verse 10. And the man who stood among the myrtle trees answered and said, These are the ones whom the Lord has sent to walk to and fro, fro throughout the earth. So they answered the angel of the Lord who stood among the myrtle trees and said, We have walked to and fro throughout the earth, and behold, all the earth is resting quietly. So who is this guy, this man, it says? They give him a title, the angel of the Lord. And what is happening? What are these, what's this horse patrol and the, these multicolored horses all going out? What, what is this all about? Well, the man is the angel of the Lord, and that is Jesus. Jesus. You didn't know you were going to read about Jesus in the book of Zechariah, did you? Jesus shows up in chapter 1 of the book of Zechariah. We know this is Jesus. And in fact, Jesus appears many times in the Old Testament. But wait, you say, wasn't Jesus born 400 years later after this, more than 400 years later, in Bethlehem? Isn't that where Jesus was born? How could Jesus be here in the book of Zechariah? Well, that's true. But he didn't just show up when he was born in Bethlehem. That's when he received his human body, but he appeared in human form many times in the Bible, in the Old Testament. These are called Christophanies. There's your big word for the day, Christophanies. And uh, in fact, every time that you see God in a human form, it's Jesus. Every single time. And how do we know that? Because in 1 Timothy 6.16, it says, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be the everlasting power. Amen. And it's talking about God, the Father. So it says no man can see or has ever seen. So all the time someone saw God in a human form, guess who it was? Jesus. Let's look at a couple of them in the, in the Old Testament just to get some context of how Jesus has been showing up. Now, the angel verse in Genesis chapter 16, verses 7 through 13, it says, Now the angel of the Lord found her, 
this is Abraham's uh, maidservant, by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, Sarah's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit yourself to her hand. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly so that they shall be count. They shall not be counted for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you you are with child and you shall bear a son and you shall call his name Ishmael. Because the Lord has heard your affliction, and he shall be a wild man, and he shall be against every man, and every man's hand against him, and he shall dwell in the presence of his brethren. Then she called on the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are the God who sees. For she said, I have also seen him who sees me. So look at where we're at in Zechariah. We see a vision of Jesus standing amongst some myrtle trees and he's sending out all these other guys riding horses who are angels to go look or look throughout the world and jesus previously had already revealed himself as you are the god who sees jesus sees what's going on jesus sees and he i like her quote there i have also seen him who sees me So she got this awesome opportunity to actually see Jesus before he was even born. And she knew that he was the one who had been watching her. And it it mattered to him. Now, doesn't that sound like the character of Jesus, the heart of Jesus? Can you just picture Jesus saying these things? Oh, you're going to be blessed. And here's the truth about the situation. But but I'm going to bless you and I see your affliction. I care about you. Those things line up with the heart of Jesus. They line up with what he's all about. A little bit later in Genesis chapter 22, the angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now that I know, now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son from me. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a bird offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, Because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, blessing, I will bless you and multiplying, I will multiply your descendants of the stars of heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. And in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and rose up and went together to Beersheba and Abraham dwelt in Beersheba. So here you have Jesus calling out from heaven on a very specific moment, the moment where Abraham was called to sacrifice his son. And do you know what mountain they were on? Mount Moriah. What would happen on that same mountain to that? Well, uh, four, four thousand, like three thousand years later. Jesus himself would be sacrificed, would be crucified. That's the same mountain. It's Mount Moriah. It's right there. 
It's crazy. So Jesus is right there. He speaks to Abraham from heaven and he says, don't worry. God's going to provide himself a sacrifice. Just awesome that Jesus. And could you imagine Jesus voice trembling even as he said, Abraham, this faith that you're demonstrating, your trust, I'm going to I'm going to reward that with my actions, with my life. I'm going to come through for you. So then the angel of the Lord appears again in Judges, many other times, but I'm going to focus here in Judges chapter 2. It says, the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim. So he's like taking a walk in Israel. And he says, and he said, I led you up from Egypt and brought you to the land which I swore to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land and you shall tear down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? Therefore, I also said, I will drive them out before you, but they shall be thorns in your side and their gods shall be a snare to you. It's funny because I hear Jesus say the words thorns in your side. And I think of a couple thousand years later when he's talking to a guy named Saul. And, and Saul, you know, he's like, why do you kick against the goads, Saul? These thorns that would go in the side of a, of a horse or, or a cow or whatever. And he's, he's saying, Saul, why do you kick against the goats? Why are you going your own way? He's saying that to his same people. These, these things, they, they connect for me that Jesus in the Old Testament is the same guy as we see in the New Testament. And then even after he died and rose again, he talked to Paul the same way. Bro, why are you kicking against the goats? Verse 4, so it was when the angel of the Lord spoke these words to the children of Israel that all the people lifted up their voice and wept. Another connection, just like they will lift up their voice and weep the next time that they see Jesus at his second coming. It says all the nations of the earth, they will look upon Jesus whom they've pierced and they'll weep, they'll cry, they'll, they'll mourn as one mourns for their firstborn son, it says. So all these connections between what he says as the angel of the Lord and things that he says later in the Bible is so cool. So Jesus is a very active part of world history. He created it. He created the whole world is what we learn in Colossians and John chapter one, which means he's all powerful. He's shown up many times, which means he's all present. He was born and lived his entire life here in a human body, which means he's all understanding. He was crucified here which means he's all loving. So why does Jesus do all this? Why does Jesus choose to be the angel of the Lord? Well, in John chapter 1, verse 18, it says, No one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. And this is so cool, because it's so good with the Father that Jesus just has to tell us about it. And he couldn't wait until he was born. So he showed up all these times and he would show up in visions and he'd show up with people and he would call out from heaven all these different ways. He, would, he just had to tell us how good it was, how, how wonderful the Father is. He's so complete and satisfied that he can't stop declaring it to the friends that he loves. So when I think of Jesus being the angel of the Lord, it blows my mind and blesses my heart. Because he didn't have to do that. 
He could have just kept all that fun and goodness and blessing. He could have just kept it to himself and just, you guys are on your own. But he didn't. He chose so many times to engage and interact. Such a wonderful Jesus that we have. So then he says, he asked these angels, well, what have you been doing? And they said, well, we walked to and fro throughout the whole earth. To and fro. So they've been wandering, looking, taking, just checking out what's been going on with all the countries and Israel coming back into the land. And it's been quite an interesting time for the nation of Israel. They're, they're poor, they're broken, they're coming back into the land, they got nothing. And so the angels have been watching it. But he uses that term, to and fro, and it made me think, when, it, when else have we seen that in the word of God? Well, in Genesis 8-7, it says that Noah sent out a raven, which kept going to and fro until the waters had dried up from the earth. So, I don't know what that means, but it did. In Second Chronicles 16-9, there's a great verse that says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. That's an awesome verse. Shows that God is going, his eyes are going to and fro throughout the world. And in, in um, Job chapter 1-7, we read God a couple times in Job asked Satan, where you been? And Satan said, I've been going to and fro throughout the world, checking out all the people and walking back and forth on it. Well, that's not very comforting. So God's watching. The angels are going to and fro. Satan's going to and fro. And then in Zechariah, just a couple pages over in chapter 4, verse 10, he says, For who has despised the day of small things? For these seven rejoice to see the plumb line in the hand of the Lord of Zerubbabel. They are the eyes of the Lord, which scan to and fro throughout the whole earth. So there it says, that God has seven eyes that scan to and fro throughout the whole earth. Interesting. Well, I don't know what that's going to look like, but I do know that the number seven in the Bible speaks of completion. It speaks of perfection. And so what that means is that God sees perfectly what you're going through. And even if he missed something, he's got all his angels checking it out too. But in this vision, we have all these angels that have been checking it out. And you have Jesus there standing and he's asking them, checking it out. And what we see here is that God isn't passive. He's searching. He's into this. He's into his people. He's into it. He doesn't have more important things going up on heaven. There's no football games for the NFL of heaven. He's not distracted. He doesn't care about the new release of the Hobbit. He is totally into what is going on in your life. His people. That's his thing. That's what he's into. That's what he cares about. But so is Satan. He's looking for how he can make God hurt. How he can stab Jesus in the heart. And he's trying to take down those whom Jesus loves. He's just trying to take them out. So all this is happening over us. And we... So oftentimes we're just blind to what's going on. But here's a vision that's showing us what's going on behind the scenes. So look at verse 12. The angel of the Lord answered and said, so Jesus, this is his answer. 
O Lord of hosts, how long will you not, will you not have mercy on Jerusalem and on the cities of Judah, against which you were angry these 70 years? And the Lord answered the angel who talked to me with good and comforting words. So the angel who spoke to me said, proclaim, saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am zealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with great zeal. I am exceedingly angry with the nations who with the nations at ease, for I was a little angry and they helped, but with evil intent. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I am returning to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, says the Lord of hosts, and a surveyor's lane line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Again, proclaiming, uh, proclaim, saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, my city shall again spread out through prosperity. The Lord will comfort Zion and will again choose Jerusalem. So what happens here is Jesus declares, oh, God, you know, what is going, God, what are, what is going on? What are we doing here? What's going on here with my people? I love my people. And the response from heaven is, I am so passionate for these people. Yes, I was angry with them a little bit. They needed to go into captivity. And so I used Babylon to take them into captivity. But Babylon went too far. Babylon hurt them more than I wanted them hurt. And I am zealous. I'm zealous. And it says, I am zealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with great zeal. And the word great zeal in Hebrew means red face. Red face. God's passion and zeal for his people causes him to get red in the face. He's just like, no, that's not right. They went too far. They can't do that. And I love at the beginning, it says, the Lord, the, the Lord answered the angel who talked to me with good and comforting words. Good and comforting. Isn't that just God's character? Jesus' character is so wonderful. And it's awesome when you've been going through just a terrible day or a terrible life. And Jesus knows just how to speak good and comforting words to you. You know, there was this pastor from a Methodist church in Scarborough, uh, William Sangster. And he had an eccentric member of his church who tried to be a zealous Christian. Unfortunately, the man was mentally deficient uh, and usually did the wrong thing. While working as a barber, the man lathered up a customer for a shave, came to him with a poised razor and asked, are you prepared to meet your God? The frightened man fled with the lather on his face. That is the opposite of speaking good and comforting words and not using wise words. Jesus uses good words and comforting words, and it's awesome. But these people are so discouraged. They feel abandoned and abused, punished and forgotten. And that's so far from the truth, God says. That's what the book of Zechariah is saying. I am not just punishing you for no reason. I have not forgotten about you. I care so much about you. It, it makes my face red with passion. I love you. And our feelings and our circumstances can be such lies. We, have, we always have to go back to the word to find out what the truth is. What is it that you think is the truth? Is, is what you feel real? Is it what you see around you real? And you know what feel, we, we think, it feels like I'm forgotten. I feel lost. I feel unloved. I can't see a way out of the situation. I can't see how this can be made right, even by God. So what do we do to go to find out the truth? We go to the word. 
We believe what the word says. And if you disagree with the word, you're just wrong. You know, I've had people come up and say, yeah, I've tried Jesus. They call on the radio. I've tried this Christian thing. And I have to lovingly say to them, you're a big fat liar. You haven't tried Jesus. You either are all in with Jesus and you find out that he's the truth. Or you haven't. There's no trying him out. You humble yourself before him or you don't. That's it. And it's, it's, uh, it can be hard to hear when you, when you want to, before you've humbled yourself, before you've come to the Lord. So, sometimes we hear the word tell us that we need to repent. Sometimes we hear the word tell us that we're loved. And these are all good and comforting things. And this is God's restoration project in our lives when they're in disarray. God is not telling you to just fix it, get right first and then come to me. No, he speaks good and comforting words when we're in the disarray, when we're in the messed up place. He speaks good and comforting words. When we're there, when we need his help, he is there to help. And what does he say? He says, I am zealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with great zeal, this red face. And I'm exceedingly angry with these nations who are at ease right now. I was a little angry, but they helped with this evil intent. I care is what Jesus says. I care about the the dumb situation that you're in. I care about that. I care. I care so much. My face gets red at the injustice that's been done to you. It's not just zeal, but it's great zeal. He's passionate for us. He will fight for us. What does this look like, him fighting for us? He says, I will do whatever it takes for you to be healed, saved, and restored. I will die for you if I have to. I will forgive everything you've ever done wrong. I will take the blame. I will take the punishment. I love you, he screams. There's an old tale told of a great English actor, Macready. An eminent preacher once said to him, I, w- I wish you could explain me to me something. Well, what is it? I don't know what I can explain, if I can explain anything to a preacher. What is the reason for the difference between you and me? You are appearing before crowds day and night with fiction, and the crowds come wherever you go. And I'm preaching the essential and unchangeable truth of God, and I'm not getting any crowd at all. And McCready's answer was this. Well, this is quite simple. I can tell the difference between us. I present my fiction as though it were truth, and you present your truth as though it were fiction. One of them was sold out to what they were talking about, and the other one, you couldn't tell that they believed it with all their heart. And that's why a few hundred years later, Jesus would come to be born a man which was told to us in Isaiah chapter 9. Now check out what Isaiah chapter 9 says. For unto us is born a child, and unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end until the throne of David, upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it, establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward and forevermore. And the zeal of the Lord of the hosts will perform this. His zeal, his passion to fix the world, to fix his people, to fix those who trust in him, to be there for them and save them. He is passionate for it. He loves us. 
So he says, I'm returning to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, says the Lord of hosts. And the surveyor's line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. And again, proclaim, saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, my city shall again be spread out through prosperity. And the Lord will again comfort Zion and will again choose Jerusalem. We don't get here a list of things we need to fix to fix our own situation. It's opposite of that. It's this is what I'm going to do. I'm coming in to fix it all. I'm the builder. I'm the restorer. I'm returning in mercy, helping. Mercy, comfort, mercy and comfort are coming. Watch for me. Look for me. And we'll and all that and that. When I come, it will lead you into the prosperity that you're looking for. What kind of prosperity? Well, the house will be built, which means a place for people to commune with me. And then the cities will grow, which means that there will be a place for people to multiply and, and to grow in population and families and security. Just like our church grows, both as a place to spend time with God and in, in population and security. And it's funny because about four years later, after this prophecy, Zion was comforted and Jerusalem was specially chosen. The temple was rebuilt four years, just four years after Zechariah gave this prophecy. But for us, the Lord is working that out. So now look at verse 18. It says, Then I raised my eyes and looked, and there were four horns. And I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these? So he answered me, These are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I said, what are these coming to do? And so he said, these are the horns that scattered Judah so no one can lift up his head. But the craftsmen are coming to terrify them, to cast out the horns of the nations and to lift up their horn against the land of Judah to scatter it. So what's this all about? Here's our second vision. We have seven that we're going to look at. Not tonight, but we have this is our second one that we're seeing. So in this one, we have these horns. Horns were the pride like of a bull. If you think of a bull and his horns, it's an obvious choice or symbol to represent strength or invisible strength. So these four horns likely represent the four nations that God had been using to judge Israel. It could have been Babylonian, Babylon, the Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. That's just one idea of, of who these horns represent. But the, the picture is that they represent the, all the nations that have been harming God's people, that have been against God's people. And he said he's sending some craftsmen to terrify them. Now, if I was God and I had a football team and I was trying to come up with the scariest name to put on the helmet of my football team, I would not choose craftsmen. Just doesn't strike fear into the heart of us in 2014. A craftsman? Really, God? What? A craftsman. So, in history, God raised up other nations to judge the nations that had scattered his people. So, and even from uh, many years ago, God promised to curse those who cursed Israel. So that's a promise that even exists today. He says in Genesis 12, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you. And all the families of the earth shall be blessed through the nation of Israel. So that's one thing. But these craftsmen, if you look at the translation, this is something I learned and it blew my mind. And this one is for free today. 
You don't have to pay any extra for this, but this is worth it. This, if you don't remember anything, this, I just, this rocked my world when I learned this, okay? Craftsman, when you translate it, is translated carpenters. Again, such a great name for your football team. We're the carpenters. I guess Steelers aren't much better, but we don't like them anyway, so. Uh, So, yeah, it's translated carpenters. You know, it kind of represents the craftsman, artisan, engraver, artificer, whatever. But there's another definition in Hebrew of what carpenter is. And that other definition, the way that Hebrew language says the word, is a warrior. Or someone who's skillful to destroy. A warrior. A carpenter is seen in Hebrew as symbolic for a warrior. Now this is going to rock you. I hope it it rocked me. I hope it rocks you. Look at Mark chapter 6. Turn in your Bible to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. The first seven verses of of that chapter. It says, now, now he went out from there and he came into his own country. This is Jesus. And his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many hearing him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which, he is, which is given to him? And such mighty works are performed by his hands. Is this not the carpenter? The son of Mary? The brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, Ah, prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, and among his own house. Now he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and he healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief, and he went about the villages in a circuit teaching. I just think, I've always thought, why was Jesus a carpenter? Why, was, why did Jesus pick that profession? I mean, he could have been like trained up to be a rabbi or, or I don't know, like a, a hunter. Like he was really good or a farmer. I mean, he talks about farming a lot. He could have been a farmer. I could have seen that as his thing. But a carpenter? I literally couldn't think of any reason why Jesus was a carpenter. Why? And then I read this. A carpenter was supposed to remind people of a warrior. Of a warrior. Someone who is coming to destroy something. You know, someone who can take a piece of metal and twist it up and grind it and make it into his own will. I just, that's maybe how they came up with that. I don't know. But, Jesus was this carpenter. And he, he goes in and they say, man, this guy's just a carpenter. And he's like, yeah, don't you get it? I'm a warrior. So symbolically, he was skillful to destroy. But all that skill was wasted when he went to Nazareth because of their unbelief. He could have skillfully done great things in that city. But nothing happened except he healed a few sick people because of their unbelief. So now look what happens in verse 7. So he called the twelve to himself, and he began to send them out two by two, and he gave them power over unclean spirits, 
And he commanded them to take nothing for the journey except a staff and blah, 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 blah. They go and they, they cast out all these. It's almost like Jesus leaves us and he's just like red in the face. And he's like, you know what? They don't think I'm a warrior. They don't think I'm worth anything. I'll show you what kind of warrior I am. Here, you guys, my disciples, go out and you can kick the butts of all the spirits. You just tear them up. You can cast out all of them. I don't care. Just go. I'll show you what kind of warrior I am. I will fight for you who believe in me. I will fight for you. I will skillfully destroy the things in your life that are against me. I will fight for you to believe in me. I'll fight. I'm a warrior. Even though there's evil spirits who are going throughout this world to distract you, deceive you, and destroy you, I am the warrior that they fear. I am. I am the craftsman in this vision. I am the one that can overcome all of them and set you in a safe place where you can prosper. So in our book in Zechariah, they, they see this vision. These craftsmen come and they take care of businessmen. They're kicking the butt of all these nations and all these evil spirits. Everything that is against God's people, the craftsmen take care of. Just like our craftsmen, our carpenter came and he sent all evil spirits running scared away. I love it. That's rocked my world. And I'm just, I'm so overjoyed at what God is teaching me through the book of Zechariah. So next week, we'll be in chapter two and we'll see what God has for us then. Let's pray. Jesus, you have um, revealed yourself so powerfully and, and you're, you're so wonderful to take the time to reveal yourself and to give us visions and give us different ways that we can see you. And, and Lord, for this whole thing about you being a carpenter and how that represented strength and the victory over your enemies, Lord God, we needed that tonight. God, we, maybe, Lord, we, we doubt that there's something that you, you can give us victory in. Lord, I pray that we would not be like the people in Nazareth in the time that you were there, God, who didn't believe. But I pray that we would be a congregation and a church, Lord, that just believes in you, just believes that you're going to take care of business, that you are going to work, God. And we just want to engage with that through surrendering our lives to you, surrendering everything that we have, God. Oh, Lord, it's so wonderful to have a God who speaks good and comforting words. Some God who, can, who we can come to, Lord, when we've been um, distant or we felt just like we've been going through this desert time in our life or even being punished, going through these great trials, God, and, and you know just, just the thing to say to help us. God, I pray we'd be encouraged. And Lord, with the, with the news and all the, the changes happening here at the church, Lord God, I pray you would uh, lift our spirits. God, you would just encourage us by uh, the, how you are confirming and speaking into us and all the leadership and, and each individual person here, Lord God. I pray that this would be a blessing to them. Jesus, we're all in with you. We're all in. And Lord, we trust you. And we believe, Father. We believe you're going to do great things. Amen.